time of worship. What a time of worship. Thank you all for leading us. That was good. That was fun to relax and sing a little bit. Good morning and welcome to the family room of Revelation Rock Church this morning. It's a privilege to be free to gather to worship Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, to gather to encourage each other, to utilize our giftings, to equip one another to go into the world and do the work of the ministry. You see, there's more going on here than just a social club. This isn't a bunch of self-help classes, although we're here to help one another. This isn't uh, just a place to identify with. This is a body, a fully functioning body with a whole bunch of organisms, all with different things to do. This morning, I want to thank everyone who shared last week. Whether you shared up here with a microphone or whether you shared one-on-one with each other, it takes courage to speak what the Lord's laid on our hearts. But it is our heart's desire to create an atmosphere here at The Rock that encourages each of us to operate in our giftings, to grow in confidence in sharing them with each other. The church is supposed to be a safe place to practice stepping out in faith. Like the folks who walk the tightrope. They don't start out walking without a net. I remember going to uh, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus when I was a kid. And you'd see the tightrope people walk, and the, the, the people rode the bicycles across on the wire. You know, they didn't start doing that without a net under them. The folks who climb, do rock climbs or ice climbs free solo. They log hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours, practicing and honing their skills so that when they step out on that wire or climb out on that cliff, they're confident and comfortable. That comfortable word, we've got kind of a weird picture of it here in the States. We think comfortable means AC in this last week. Thank you, Jesus, for air conditioning. We think it means Comfortable, soft, plush carpet. We think of uh, cold drinks and cold food in the fridge and hot, luscious, fat meat on the grill. That's comfortable. But really what that word, what I'm getting at by us growing in comfort and walking in the gifts that the Lord has given us is to where we're at peace. Where we're not anxious. And this is the place that we learn This is the place that we grow. There's a net here. There's a net under this body so that when we come together like last week and this morning and we've got a word to share and we're not 100% sure, we're taking a step out on the wire and it's like, I'm not sure about this. And then I give a word to Trey and it's like, this is definitely not for me and it's definitely not from God. And I fall, there's a net right there. But after a few years of practicing, sharing with each other, out of the word of God from the things the spirit of the Lord reveals, we become confident so that when we're out there and there is no net, we can walk confident and share things and minister to each other and minister to the world to share the gospel with the needy, with the people that are lost in this world. As I shared last week, the Lord uses each of us in each other's lives to speak forth his truth. We're often able to hear each other On this wavelength, our brothers and sisters confirm a word that we have in our own heart. That confirmation can be the very thing that we need to step out in faith 
and whatever the Lord has called us to. It matters that you guys, that we're here. It matters that we step out in faith while we're here, speak things. Because that could be the other half of the word. The Lord's deposited a stirring in my heart, and then when I hear Walter come and confirm it with something that he's maybe, I'm not real sure how this fits into his life, and he speaks it forth, it can ding, it can ring that, and I hear it echo, and I know that's definitely, and he may not know anything about it, but I hear that echo. So whether it's coming to do the introduction to worship, Jody, or whether it's a word that you feel encouraged to share one-on-one, I just want to encourage you, this is the atmosphere for that. For anyone who is new or visiting, or maybe you wonder why there are so many different folks speaking throughout our services here at The Rock, these are some of the reasons. Now, before we get into the Word, and there's, we're summer church's slim crowd, it's like we just always have that, but if there's anyone here in this room, whether regardless of your role, if you're in this room right now and you're participating at any level with Grace XP Camp coming up in July, I'd like to invite you to stand right now. There's a handful of you. There's not a ton. Of, there's a lot of people that aren't able to be here this morning, but there's a few of you back in the back there. There's a handful of people. If you're participating in providing stuff for fundraisers for that, there's a whole slew of them in the back that are doing that. I just want you to take a minute and look around. These are people that are investing in the next generation. This is a big time commitment. There's a lot to it, and it matters. These are some of the people involved in making Grace Camp XP 2022 a success, ensuring that the gospel goes forth with clarity and authority. So let's give them a round of applause this morning. Thank you, guys. It takes a big commitment to do that stuff. It's like fun. How many of you ever went to church camp growing up? I went to church camp. Some of you went to church camp. And it's like, well, that was a really fun week. Then we came home. That's like six months of preparation in front of it and a whole bunch of damage control on the backside of it. And all the participants remember is that like, that was a really fun week. Like we had a water balloon fight and then somebody got born again in our That was neat, but there's a whole bunch that goes into it, so I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to everybody that's a part of this body, and there's a whole bunch of other people involved that are part of this body that aren't here this morning. All right. It is good to be here today. Good to be in the house of the Lord. We're going to talk about something this morning. We're actually not going to talk about something. We're going to talk about the one thing. We're going to talk about it, the most important. The one thing that everything flows out of that we call church, that we sing about, that we gather for, that we're called into, the title, as Tom shared, of my message this morning, if you're writing down titles, Olivia, is, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Now, we reference saved a lot, don't we? And it's probably just... Being a realist, probably be the title of next week's message too at this point. We talk about saved. We talk about Christians. I've heard, like we hear the word Christian all the time. Are you a Christian? Yep, I'm a Christian. Oh, it's a Christian nation. Well, this is a Christian organization. This is a Christian, and we use the word Christian. We even use here, especially at The Rock, we talk a lot about being born again. Talk about, I was born again. So-and-so was born again. This person is now, and then we talk about things like being right with God and being 
the righteousness of God created in Christ Jesus. We talk about how anyone who is in Christ, the promises of God, according to what Paul wrote to the church at Rome, are yes and amen to those who are in Christ. And we, we read through that. We talk about it. And sometimes we do it with the maybe preformed notion that everybody knows what that means. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. And all you hear is new creation. It's like, what do you mean? How do you get in Christ? How do you get saved? Is Christian just, well, I mean, I, I've kind of always been a Christian. No one's always been a Christian. You haven't always been a Christian. Well, you know, but we, I, like, we went to church a lot and stuff. Not relevant. It's important to go to church. That's great. It's not relevant to your state of being saved or not being saved. And I, wanna, I want to encourage us. I want us to grow big and strong in this so that it is not something that we question in our own hearts first and foremost. And that we don't question it when we minister this to those around us. This is the first and most important step in discipleship. You can teach somebody how to act a certain way, but if the heart condition's not right, the actions, all the acting in the world is irrelevant. Because you see, when we cross over into eternity, we don't fill out a form of all of the actions that we've completed or not completed. Thank goodness, Danny, that's right. We don't fill out this form. Well, I've done some, I, you know, there was some stuff I did kind of miss a little bit, but, but you know, by and large, I did. And there's so many people in this world today that would, if you ask them on the street, are you a Christian, they'd say yes. You say, are you going to heaven when you die? They'd say yes. You say, how do you know that? Well, I've done some good things. Or maybe my good things, I've been pretty nice to people. Maybe my good things outweigh my, the bad things I've done. There's been some times that it's like, you, you know, I did drop the ball, but man, I carried it a lot more than I dropped it. But we know in the body of Christ that if you drop the ball once, you're done. In fact, it goes beyond that. The Bible says that we were conceived in iniquity, that through Adam all sinned. We start out behind the eight ball. We don't start out with like a, we're in the middle and you know, we can kind of go either way. We start out done. So there's a Greek word where I'm getting ahead of myself and around here, but there's a Greek word, hamartia. And it's a noun. It's translated in your Bibles and my Bibles as the word sin. We always identify the word sin with an action or a behavior in our American culture. But it's actually translated a lot of times, it should be a noun. It should be more of an identity. We're going to look at this. That's what sets us away from God. That's what separates us. Now, that noun identity in each of our lives usually manifests in behaviors. It comes out of us in behavior form. But it starts out as an identity issue. All of faith, all of being right with God is rooted in our identities. We're going to start in the book of John. We're going to read a whole bunch of scripture this morning. It, most of it will be up on the screen. Some of it may not be. You're welcome to follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. We're going to start, we're going to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar, this is a conversation that Jesus had with a religious leader of his day. This is before the resurrection, before the crucifixion. This is a religious leader. He was an elite member of Jewish leadership 
And he had some questions about who Jesus was. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born of the water and born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify, what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. This is where we see Jesus really lay it out about being born again. And we kind of rip that phrase out of this, but without really spending a little time thinking about it. Some people think, and I think a lot of times we read through some of the things that Jesus said, it's like, well, that was like a good metaphor to be born again. That's a pretty solid metaphor. You know, they were born in the flesh of the born of the water, born naturally, and then you can be born again. But you know, Jesus is actually described as the word. He was in the beginning there, speaking the earth into being. No human ever in existence had a better handle on the importance of each word than Jesus did. When he spoke, he did not waste any words. He didn't get close with some words. It wasn't I mean, it's the idea. There's some holes in that one. So, how many, You know, everyone that's been here for any length of time know I love metaphors. That's how I process. That's how I understand. And often that's how I explain things. But all of my metaphors have holes in them. If you run them all the way, now I can find a spot and it's like, oh, can you get it this little spot? Yeah, but if you play it out longer, it's like, well, there's some holes. But you, they're just used as just that, just a metaphor to help us understand. They're not, I'm not speaking them as though they are gospel, okay? But when Jesus used words, 
There was, they were airtight. There was no holes in them. So when he talks about being born again, that's what he meant. To be born again. Now, just this last week, I kind of got a little revelation on this, and it's something I've never thought about. I've used the word born again. I personally was born again when I was nine. I put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was nine years old. And I've been saying the word born again since. But just this last week, I saw something interesting with this. To be born the first time, we're going to look at a few little details on this, and this is not by any means where we're, we're not going to stay here. We've got a whole bunch of scripture to go through. But to be born the first time, Jesus said, unless one is born of water. So you've got to be born of water to get started here. What are we talking about, born of water, born in the natural? It means to go. Think about birth. Now, I've had three kids that I was there for all three of their births. And I, and I was there, you know, like as, as the baby was growing and, and Melinda's belly was getting bigger and you could feel moving and it was neat. But you know, each of my children, when they were in the womb, and each of us, when we were in our mother's womb, we experienced the natural world. You know that? We all experienced it. A baby in the womb can hear things. They can, they can get to know voices. A baby in the womb um, can experience movement. It actually, this is what they say, I don't know, I've never got a real solid read from any of my kids whether they could see light when they were in the womb. They don't seem to remember that. But they react and respond to light in the womb, which is crazy. I have, uh, my oldest, my daughter, loves water. She loves to swim. She's like a fish. And the funny thing is when Melinda was pregnant with her, when we would go swimming, she would just move all over the place. As a baby in the womb, she was just going bonkers. So somehow there's an experiencing of the natural. But when they get born, when they come out, they experience life firsthand. They're, you know, a baby in the womb still participates in oxygen consumption. But they're not breathing. They're in a little bubble in there but there's they're not breathing like we breathe but as soon as they come out they cough they snort a little bit and then mine all start screaming I don't know if anyone else's did but they start screaming they start experiencing air on their own when they get born of water in the natural sense, to be born is to begin processing. I want you to think about this, church. So get here. This is maybe a different take on this than you've ever had before. So just kind of get here with me. To be born in the natural sense is to begin processing relationships, food, water, air, sight, smell, etc., etc. The list goes on. They begin experiencing them for themselves. See, before that, what is there between them and everything else? There's a veil. There's a veil. To be born again in the Spirit is to go from experiencing everything secondhand under the old covenant. It was all secondhand. Under the old covenant, our ability to experience God was all through another person. Just as a child in the womb, their ability to experience the entire earth and everything around them is all to the degree that they experience it through another person. To be born again is to go from experiencing everything secondhand 
to experiencing everything firsthand through the Holy Spirit. Our mother's body provided a veil when we were in the womb. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was rent. Means it was split, it was open. And now, as a a believer today in Christ, we experience God firsthand. You know, and I think we know this if you've been here for any length of time, this body does not experience God through a person up front. Any person up front. There's no hierarchy here where it's like, well, if you want to get right with God, you come talk to me, and I'll talk to him. That's not how it works anymore. You've been given the Spirit of Christ. You've been made right with God. If you're here today and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, and we're going to talk through this a little bit more here, now you got born again. You're no longer experiencing air. You're no longer experiencing food, relationships, fellowship, all that stuff. You're not experiencing it through a veil of another person. Now you're experiencing it firsthand. That's an amazing, I hope, you, I hope I conveyed that picture this morning. That's what Jesus was communicating. You can't do this whole go-between with a person anymore, Nicodemus. It's about you experiencing the Father. You experiencing the Spirit of God. And now, once the new covenant is enacted, it's possible. Up to that point, it was a pipe dream. I can't have a relationship one-on-one. It was a pipe dream. But once Jesus came and enacted the new covenant, now we get the opportunity to be born again. To have that veil rent, to begin to experience God, to experience the Spirit of God, to participate in the inheritance that Jesus provided firsthand. That's our first scripture, the first thing we want to talk about this morning. Being born again is when the veil is split and we experience God firsthand. Now we talked a little bit about this uh, earlier, but 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 so to get born again, let's back up to John chapter 3. To get born again, it's like, okay, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But he doesn't really give a description in that verse to be born again. That's why Nicodemus is, in uh, verse 9, he says, how can these things be? If you look, he says, uh, let's see, verse 15, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the way that we leave the womb and get born again is to believe. How many of you in the natural, on the spur of the moment, would rather him say, to be born again you have to run a mile in under 10 minutes? Now, that sounds exhausting. Under 20 minutes. It's like a thing. We can put our, it's like, oh, because if, if I've run the mile and we kept the time, then it's done. Does, that, does anybody relate? It's like, a th- or maybe you have to, you have to be in this building. If you walk in this physical building, now you're born again. That's like the natural, do you see what I'm saying? That's a natural thing. Like, could you have just given us, like, this believe just seems vague. What do you mean by, like, to believe? To believe what? Believes in him. Oh, but he gave us a little clarity in verse 14. He says, as Moses, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, verse 14 of John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the children of Israel, there was this play going through the tribe. We're not going to look at the whole, all of the details of this. But 
God instructed Moses to craft this serpent, put it up on a pole, and any of the children of Israel looked at it, they would be healed. Immediately healed. Physically healed. It was a type and a shadow. It was a picture of what Jesus, they had to trust. Now, we're going to get into another description of this, but in that description, one prerequisite is there. And it's missed sometimes. It's like, all you got to do is look at the serpent. Look at the serpent on the pole. Back up a little bit. Why do you need to look at the serpent? Because you're in need of healing. We're in need of healing. Today, we're going to look at this uh, passage in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It's a uh, scripture that's kind of thrown around in the church today, does, does a lot of different things uh, to people, to their understanding, to their thoughts about things, to their, even their confidence. This is, this is one of the biggest passages of Scripture that destroys confidence in the body of Christ. And you say, whoa, how, how can it? Well, just bear with me. Verse 9 of 1 John chapter 1 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now this, this verse, if we take it in verse form, just that verse, make it stand all by itself, it's got its own four legs and its own thing, it just walks all by itself, is implied in that as if you don't confess your sins, he is not faithful, he will not forgive you, and you will not be cleansed. You see that? And that, well, well that's confusing. I, I'm confused now because Jesus said if you believe well, he didn't say if you confess your sins, he said if you believe. And I've been learning this, little different pieces of this from several different people been speaking into my life regarding this topic. And it's really, really important to note that uh, two things that I want to talk about, and I've talked to the elders about this the last several weeks. We've had some opportunities to have good discussion. So this has become a doctrine in the church. If you confess, so if you don't confess your sin, you could die and not be right with God. This is the under, it's not in this church. I'm just talking here, okay? We're talking about the history of this passage. But it's important to note that as humans, when we read the Bible, do we know who added chapters and verses? Humans did. And I, I think it was great that they did. It's very handy. It helps us to do things like turn in your Bibles to 1 John 1, 9. But it also kind of did us a negative. I think about this, as many of you know, social media, I don't even know what the things are, what the, the names of them are right now. Like there's, like Twitter was the old one and Facebook and all that stuff, but there's, there's always new social medias. You know those can be really good? Anybody know that? Like there can be people that have, people have really spoken truth and shared the gospel on those platforms, but they can also be used really negatively. Everybody familiar with that? Now, I primarily major on the negativities of those, so I apologize to anyone who's been really blessed by them. I, I shouldn't, but I just tend towards seeing, well, it creates all this negative things. But you understand there's a, it's a double-edged sword. There's some good that can, be, that can come from it, and there's some really not that good that can come from it. In the same way, our chapter and verse ascribing in Scripture is really good. Because it helps us find our way around. In fact, it expedites finding our way around. The problem with it, the negative side of that sword, is it also enables us to rip things out, to make a billboard, to make a statement, 
that may not be contextually accurate. Do you see how this could happen? Because if there were no chapter 1, verse 9, we would just have to read the first epistle of John. And we just have to read the whole thing. Because no one reads a novel and it's like, well, I just, I just really like this one sentence. It's like we know in a novel, that, well, this sentence doesn't mean anything without the rest of the book. You know, like a movie, there's, I mean, how many of you quote movies? And have you ever been the, the guy or the girl that thought everyone had seen the movie and you make a reference to it and it's just like deadpan, nobody. Look around and everyone, in that moment, you're wishing you had never seen the movie. Because like, no one gets it and it's, ah. And then we, we cover it with, well, if you'd have seen the movie. That's the picture that I get with some of these scriptures. It's like, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us your sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And everyone just kind of looks at you. That's born again by faith through grace. We just look, it's like, what are you talking? Well, if you'd read the book, if you'd seen 1 John, you'd understand what I mean. Does that make sense to everybody? What we're actually talking about, the second part of this is confessing your sin. This word sins, it's translated sins in the New King James Version, is not a verb. Anybody know what a verb is? This is English 101. Anybody know what a verb is? Just shout it out. It's an action. What do you think this word could be? It's a noun. What is a noun? Person, place, or thing. My goodness, we got some straight A students here. So if it's not an action, then if you do an action, it's not talking about the action. Do you see this? We can read, it's like, if we confess our actions, except it's not an action. What's he talking about here? This is a word, this is a D, so, okay. Confess our sins. Noun, which is a condition, not an action. As in Adam, all sinned. We were born in this condition. This passage is not a prescription for believers to band-aid our missteps. I want to be clear. This is not a prescription. Well, here's the bottle. You just take one. Every time you have a headache, you take one. Every time you misstep and fail, just pop a, pop a pill of confession. It's not a prescription. It is descriptive of how salvation works. Does this make sense? This passage is not about each failure, but about confessing or realizing our own state of unrighteousness, the condition of sin. Because you see, in, just as the children of Israel in the desert needed to, they needed to need healed. Does that make sense? I want to say that again. They needed to need healed before looking at the serpent provided any, for any healing for them. If they didn't need healed, they wouldn't look at the serpent. This prerequisite of needing salvation is required. Salvation is a free gift, but if you don't need it, you're not going to take it. We have to understand our natural state of unrighteousness before Jesus. You see, this is about before Jesus. Now, like I said, the noun of a sin condition always manifests in behaviors. 
It just, it does. It's, now, I'm not speaking that prophetically over anyone. It's just, that just happens. But what happens is, after that noun's been fixed, after we confess our relative unrighteousness to Jesus, that we have a sin condition. This noun condition exists. You know, ver- the verb part of that persists long after the noun's been dealt with. It just does. We're in a fallen world, and it's not all fixed yet. It's getting easier every day that goes by to see it is definitely not all fixed yet. But you're standing with the Father, this noun condition, if we confess our noun condition, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from that particular bit of unrighteousness. No. Let's read it again. Can you bring it back up, Olivia? If we confess our condition, our noun condition of sin, he, Jesus, is faithful and he's legally just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I get an amen? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Goes on in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, if we come and we say, I haven't really sinned, let me ask you something. Do you need a Savior then? No. If you haven't sinned, you don't need a Savior. It's imperative because how many people that are in the pool, and we've talked about this metaphor before, they think they're swimming fine. The lifeguard is aware that person is in the middle of drowning. If you throw a buoy to that person and they think they're swimming fine, are they going to grab the buoy? No. They don't need it. They perceive themselves to be fine. It is imperative as a person, before you get born again, you need to know that you need to get born again. Does this make sense? I'm going painfully slow through this. Some of you may be saying, we got the picture. We're going to look at some more scripture about this because it's really important. I want us to understand contextually in scripture what I'm talking about. After Christ, we have been cleansed. Our flesh continues to verb, but the nature of sin, the noun part of sin, has been dealt with in full. You got your Bibles still open? You want to turn over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10 Verses 1 through 13. I did, in my defense, warn you we were going to read a lot of scripture this morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Brethren, if you don't need a little backstory on Romans, it is Paul's most complete expose on grace. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Right there, we're we're not going to do this every verse, but implied in that is that they are not. You see that? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So they weren't yet. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness' sake, For everyone who believes, there's that word believes again. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. 
But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. The same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. Verse 13, let's all read this together. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was weak sauce. We're going to do it again. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's important to say these things. We don't do a lot of that here all the time, but it's important to get your vocal cords involved in this message. Whoever, pretty inclusive word, whoever calls on the name. He just clarified in verse 12, there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks, which was the biggest distinction to the Jews of the day was Jews and everybody else. There is no distinction. The same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're going to write a verse down from this morning, I encourage you to write down verse 13. For whoever. It is my heart's desire this morning that when we fold up our Bibles and we stand up and we begin migrating towards lunch, that no one leave here confused about what it means to be saved. That no one leaves here not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not saying everyone's going to leave here saved, but I want to communicate as clearly as possible what it means so that there is no questions in anyone's heart and mind. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's an interesting thing in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 3, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This is still uh, alive and well today, this principle of seeking to establish our own righteousness. Now, it's not always maybe advertised that particular way, but it's around. You guys all know what we're talking about. There's, it's like, well, you know, I believed in Jesus, and then it's like my job to maintain. He seals you. He saves you, and he seals you. He saves you, and he seals you. It is not on us to establish our own righteousness, because in doing so, we are not submitted to the righteousness of God. How many of you want to tap out of this life on your own right standing with God? And How many of us want to tap out of this life submitted to the righteousness of God? His righteousness is actually righteous. Ours is all, and we've talked about this, it's all sliding scale theory of relativity. It's, you know, it's not that good, but I'm not that bad. And you know, if you'd look, Lord, the last guy you just let in, I'm better than him. It's like, except the last guy was here on Jesus. If we're, if we're entering Standing with God based on anything but God's standard of righteousness, which Jesus fulfilled 
and then gave as a gift to us. If we're, we cannot engage the Father. We cannot engage the Father. We have no access points. We have to keep going because I have more verses than minutes left. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, one of the verses that, one of the stories that we reference a lot here, it's really ministered to my heart a lot, is when Paul and Silas got thrown in prison. Acts chapter 16. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you want to open that. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. I'm going to, uh, we're not going to read it all. I'm just going to share some of the story with you guys because we're, we are running a little bit low on time here. Um, so the Philippian jailer, this dude ran a jail. Paul and Silas get in trouble for sharing the gospel. They get beaten with rods, thrown in prison. They're in stocks. They're held like, which is super uncomfortable. I was put in the stocks as a child in Colonial Williamsburg by my wonderful brother. And uh, I escaped. And I think he got in trouble. But it's painful. The stocks is a painful deal. It's wooden, like you can't move. It's hard on your back. And they had been beaten, by, beaten with rods. You get to midnight and these boys are like, let's have a little time of worship. This would be a great... This would be a great time. You know, there's all these other prisoners around here. They had themselves a captive audience. I've been a dad for five years, so I think of these jokes. Is that captive? Did anybody get the captive audience? Okay. I was just surprised there wasn't more laughter. <laughs> it was pretty funny. They had a captive audience, so they start worshiping. They're, they're singing hymns. In the middle of their worship, there's an earthquake. A massive earthquake shook, the, it says, the foundations of the jail so that all the prison cells and chains fell off. They're free. We pick up in Acts chapter 16, verse 27, we see the keeper of the prison awakened from sleep, seeing the prison doors was open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, in that moment, just that verse right there, let's look at that a little bit. You know kind of the backstory. He was in charge of these guys. This earthquake happened, and they're all, in his mind, gone. Would you agree, based on the scripture that we just read, he was at the end of himself? Can we agree on that, just for the sake of this discussion? Because, and you say, well, how can you say that? Real clear. He says he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. That's very descriptive of the end of himself. He had no more hope. Right? That makes sense? And I'm not making light of that. This is a very real thing. He was at the end. He was done with this life. He had no hope. Okay? This is important for this. What does he say? Paul calls out with a loud voice. He sees this, and I believe it was supernatural because he was in the darkest part of the prison. Paul sees, calls out with a loud voice, do yourself no harm. We're all here. In other words, stop what you're about to do. Give me a minute is implied in this. It's like, I see what's going on. I'm aware you're at the end of yourself. Give me one second. We are all here. And he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling. Verse 29, before Paul and Silas. Verse 30, he brought them out and said, one of my favorite sentences in all scripture, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So I'll leave that for a second. Think about where he was at. We read this, and I oftentimes share it probably too flippantly. He was ready to take his own life. He had no hope. He was a minor character in this story, the way we often preach it and share it and read it. But you know, to Paul and Silas, he was the most important person there. 
Sir, what must I do to be saved? He was at the end of himself. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Verse 29 of Acts 16, I want to read it again. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Hold on to that verse, and we got one more scripture we're going to look at today. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. The jailer had reached the end of himself, at the end of himself, just as the Israelites reached the end of themselves, thinking they could accomplish their own deliverance. Exodus chapter 14, verse 11 and 12, we're going to read. Then they said to Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Verse 12, Is this not the word that we, were to, we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and, shall hold, and, shall, and you shall hold your peace. You say, well, I kind of changed stories here. We lost, well, where are you going with this? The Philippian jailer in Acts 16.29 was in the exact same posture as the children of Israel in verse 11. They said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? They were believing they were about to die. In this story, the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites for 430 years they, were, they had been 10 plagues. I'm walking, we're talking through this fairly quickly, church, but they had been 10 plagues. The last plague was the plague of death. All the firstborn had died, and Pharaoh finally said, get out of here. Before that, the Israelites had pillaged and plundered all of the gold and silver and rubies and jewels and all this stuff, so they left with their money. They left with their, uh, the firstborn were gone. The land of Egypt was utterly destroyed, okay? But at this point, they still had the most powerful military in all the free world. And they are coming down hard. In a stupor, the Pharaoh had said, I guess just go, whatever, get out of here. He was in heartache mode. So the Israelites are like, well, let's saddle up and leave. So they left. And where do they find themselves? Everybody's familiar with the story, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit. They find themselves pinned in. The Red Sea is in front of them, and they were not a boating people. And behind them is the Egyptian army, and they are coming in hot. That's a funny little saying that goes on in our car. Not sure how my wife drives when I'm not with her, but the kids always say, we're coming in hot, Dad. <laughs> the Israelites were fearful. They were at the end of themselves. You see this connection? They were in the same posture that the Philippian jailer was in. It's over. There's no hope. He brought us here. They, they were concerned about graves. We, we get concerned about graves when we're at the end. We're done. They had the same issues going on that the Philippian jailer had. There was no hope. We're done. The Israelites were well aware of their need for deliverance. Their part 
as always with the Lord. As always with the Lord, church, their part was to stand still. Rest. Their deliverance from the Egyptians was a type and a shadow of Jesus' deliverance of us from sin. They confessed their sin. Now, I, I say that, I put that in quotes in my thing. They confessed their need for saving. That's what we're talking about in 1 John 1, 9. Confessing our need for saving. They confessed, we need saving. We're done. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And you know, none of these instances, did Jesus didn't give Nicodemus a list. Paul and Silas didn't give the Philippian jailer a list. And Moses didn't give the Israelites a list. That's an interesting connection. Is, am I the, I'm, I'm just blown away by this. The clarity that Scripture always has, it is it always explains itself more. They confess their need for saving and then promptly cross the sea on dry land, on the dry land of their salvation. We are all, as humans, up against the Red Sea. Every human that's ever been born has been up against the Red Sea, needing to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The only prerequisite for receiving salvation is needing it. I'm going to say that again. I want you guys to think about this. If you're listening online, I want you to think about this. The only prerequisite for receiving salvation is needing it. Oftentimes in in, uh, churches, we preach this clean yourself up and come back message. It's like, I know some people, but I'd love to have them come to church, but (laughs) they're not ready for church. This isn't clean yourself up and come back. This is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The only prerequisite for receiving salvation, there's only one. If you think you can do it on your own, you missed, you failed, you did not meet the prerequisite. That's a hard thing to say. That's a hard thing to hear. If we think we can do it on our own, we're not meeting the prerequisite. You know what the pre you know what the word prerequisite? I'm just a little metaphor for that. You go to apply to college. For instance, if I would apply to a fellowship program to be a neurosurgeon, fill out the application tomorrow. Does everyone in this room and within the sound of my voice knows I will get rejected and should get rejected? I have not met any of the prerequisites. I have a pulse and I can read English. That's not a good, that's, there's a lot more prerequisites. So if I do not meet the prerequisites for this fellowship program, I will not be accepted and should not be accepted. This is the exclusion that Jesus made in John chapter 3. And none of us in faith ever talk about the exclusion part of salvation. It is very exclusive. If you think you can do it on your own, you're wrong. If I think I can achieve this on my own, I'm wrong. The only and the exclusive prerequisite to receiving salvation, to being right with God, to having all the promises in Christ Jesus, yes and amen in Scripture, the exclusive prerequisite is needing it. And that seems easy. That seems like, well, everyone needs it. 
and yet we go around drumming up, wow, you know, you, you clean yourself up, polish, look a little better, maybe quit doing that, maybe quit doing this. I'm, not, I'm for behavior. I'm for people behaving, church. I'm not preaching this. Like, well, just go out and just do whatever. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, should we continue in sin? Which, interestingly enough, that's also a noun, but that's a side sermon. Should you continue in that so that grace can abound more? No. No. That's not the point. But you have to need salvation, and you have to confess your need for it. Now, that sounds like a hoop to jump through. I'm not saying that there's a certain sentence everyone has to say. I'm saying in here, you got to confess, I need saving. And that's a short trip for most people. It's a really short trip for the children of Israel when the Egyptians were behind them, the Red Sea was in front of them. It's a short trip for the Philippian jailer whose sword was at his chest. But the one guy it was not a short trip for, and I choose to believe in my heart, I hope that Nicodemus got born again. We don't see it. What we see is that he struggled. You say, what? Why would he struggle? Well, we see that he had questions. John chapter 3, Nicodemus had questions. We read 21 verses of it. He had some uncertainties, and there's no condemnation in having uncertainties, church. He had some uncertainties, but what he wasn't, at least in John 3, was at the end of himself. He wasn't there yet. And that's, he was still trying to wrap his understanding. He was still trying to, I'll figure this out. How can this be? He wasn't at the end of himself. The noted distinction between Nicodemus, the Philippian jailer, and the Israelites in Exodus 14 is he was the only one that was not at the end of himself. So this morning, wrapping the bow all around this that we've talked about, it's simple to be saved. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And part of that we read is you need to call. Like you need to need to call. We all need to need to call. We've all needed. Now, many, and I, many to most in this room, I know firsthand have called on the name of the Lord. And you are saved. If you have needed it and you have called, then you are saved. If I have needed it and I have called, I am saved. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts, corners to cut, and things that, well, what about this, and I'm not sure. What if we, if we cherry-pick this verse, and we put it on top of this one, and then we put these three underneath it, and then it's just like, well, I don't know if you're saved anymore. If you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And there's a period at the end of that. That's a complete end of that thought. You shall be saved. Paul tells the Philippian jailer, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus explains to Nicodemus, it's through believing that you get born again, that you get to experience firsthand, that it's not any longer through a veil of someone else's thoughts and understanding. And I realize I get to preach, I get to share the gospel, but I'm not, I'm not experiencing God for you. You guys get to experience God. I get to experience God firsthand for myself. It is easy it is simple to be born again. 
the prerequisite being needing it. So when we go out into this world, and each of us go into a different quadrant of it, some of our quadrants bump into each other once in a while, but we all go into this world. It is my prayer, my heart's desire, that through the time that we spend together on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, that we sharpen each other, that we encourage each other, that we exhort one another in this simple gospel. That we don't get our master's degree on all the possible caveats, but that we major in the simplicity of the gospel. That we understand the prerequisite is needing it. And all you have to do is call in the name of the Lord. It's not, well, you have to need it, and then we've got 17-page form to fill out, and we'll see if we can plug you into the church somewhere, and if we can't, then maybe you won't be born. It's not that at all. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's available. Paul goes on in that in Acts 16. Your whole house. This isn't something that's like, well, just since you were ready to take your life, it's available to you, but until the rest of your family gets to ready to take their own life, that's, it's available to you. It's available today. Seeing and realizing our need for a Savior is all we need to do to be saved. And that's it. And it's simple. You might be here today thinking, well, I was really hoping for some deeper theology, Isaac. I was hoping for some more 16-cylinder words today. This is simple. This is all, all I carry is the fish and the loaves of the gospel. That's it. I don't have, uh, we, this isn't doctrine 304. This is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the simple gospel. And I want to encourage you, be bold with that this week. Have confidence that when you see someone that may be at the point of the Red Sea, and they might have that look on their face. Anybody else ever, you met somebody, and it might be somebody you know, it might be somebody you don't know, and you can see that look, that when I just described that, they're at the Red Sea, it's like, oh yeah, I've seen people there. Anybody ever, done, it's like, you know, they're at the Red Sea, or they're the Philippian, it's like, they're just donezo. Maybe it's somebody, you know, personally, maybe it's somebody that you just walked out, it's like, they are, this is, they're at the end. They're at the Red Sea, like, what, are we gonna, just gonna bury us out here, Moses? What are you doing? In that moment, I encourage you, have the confidence to say, do not be afraid, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. This is good news. This is good news. If you've been a human on this earth for any length of time, you're well aware of our shortcomings. I'm well aware of my shortcomings, and the people that we encounter in the world are well aware of their shortcomings. We all have been in need of deliverance. I just love these pictures. I love these pictures, and I appreciate everybody having the patience to go. We went a little bit longer than we normally do this morning, but I appreciate all of your patience. If you would stand with me this morning, I'd like to dismiss us with a declaration today. As we have studied salvation here this morning, we're thankful for what Jesus has done for us. We rejoice as covenant sons and daughters of the King. Because of this great gift of salvation, we can declare with the Israelites under Moses and Joshua that we are blessed and highly favored.
blessed in the city and in the country, when we rise up and when we lie down. Though this world we live in isn't fixed yet, the salvation of the Lord is at hand and is so much greater than anything and everything in this natural existence that we can learn to be content and at peace in all circumstances. Whether abased or abounding, we are the righteousness of God created in Christ Jesus and as such, we have hope that this week will be colored by our right standing with the Father. We choose to carry ourselves with graceful confidence as we carry the good news of Jesus Christ to this dark world. We thank you, Jesus, this morning that you are the light of the world shining forth from us, these earthen vessels. Heavenly Father, we just pray a blessing over this body. Pray a blessing over the words that we've shared this morning, over your word we have read and spoken. Father, we thank you We thank you this morning that you are faithful. You have begun a good work in us. You will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. We thank you that you don't just let your word wander around doing nothing, but you insist on it coming back to you, having accomplished its purpose. We pray a blessing right now over each person that's here, the kids in the back, the people fixing all the enchilada dinners right now. We just pray a blessing over each person on our worship team, all the details that made this morning happen. The guests, the visitors, the the family that have been here from the very beginning in this body. We just thank you, Father, for your goodness, that you are always and only good, that even though this world is kind of a mess, that we can go about with the boldness of a lion, knowing that we are right with you. Pray a blessing right now over the rest of our day. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful week.